Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest podcast here at Treknababble. This is Kevin. This is Matthew. And tonight, uh, we are going to be looking at the episode Treachery, Faith, and the Great River. It's a personal favorite from Season 7 for me. It's a, kind of a fun episode uh, to, to place this actual podcast in its historical context. A certain election has just taken place, and I don't think it will shock our viewership to know that uh, neither Matthew nor I were entirely pleased with the outcome uh, and feel no small amount of, you know, crippling existential dread. Um, so, so if you're listening to this in the fallout-like ruins of America on some, you know, tape recorder you find in the rubble, I hope you we enjoyed told it. You so. Yeah, we did. We t- absolutely told you so. All I've wanted since I was nine was to live in Star Trek and my country just did the exact opposite. Uh, so that's, that's been fun for me. So we, we picked an episode that's a little lighter weight, a little, a little more fun tonight uh, to kind of ease us back into navigating the world. Um, well, you know, Kevin, before we start, you, you said something that uh, resonates with me because actually I had a conversation with my wife about almost that very thing. Um, you know, I, I was <laughs> trying to explain why I was so upset and why I didn't want to talk about it. And, you know, yeah. And it, the basic thesis was that, you know, for a long time, I've been really idealistic, you know. And Star Trek is a big part of that. You know, Star Trek has always been this, you know, shining beacon of the kind of world that we want to live in. You know, and I know Kevin agrees with me on that point. And not everybody agrees with it. You know, not everybody views Star Trek as the, you know, sort of secular humanist fantasy world of their dreams, right? But we do, okay? And, you know, so part of my worldview was formed by Star Trek. And that worldview has always been that for all its faults, for all its, you know, history, uh, for all its issues, for all the, the challenges that would be difficult to overcome, uh, the United States represented the best yet uh, experiment in living and self-governance and science and technology and education and, and you know, basic lifestyle, you know, insofar as it could lead us to a world like the one that you and I want to live in. And I always felt as though there were enough people who were aligned intellectually and emotionally, uh, you know, sort of in the right direction to, with fits and starts, to keep tilting us toward that direction, you know? And now I don't believe that anymore. Now it's just like, there's just this whole segment of the population that I just don't relate to at all. And they are not motivated by the things I'm motivated by or even things like the things I'm motivated by. Right, because either they're assholes or they are... Complete ignoramuses. Passively acquiescing to assholes in what they're crossing their fingers is their own self-interest. Yeah. No, yeah, it's, it, yeah. And so it's it's a very, you know, it's kind of a world-shattering sort of thing, you know, to, to, not, to not be able to maintain that idealistic view, you know, that hopeful view of the people I'm surrounded by, you know, the states <laughs> I'm surrounded by. Uh, it, and look, you know, I had always felt that there were spaces at the table for rational people with differing opinions and beliefs, you know, that there are good Republicans and good Democrats, good libertarians, good socialists, you know, who could all bring their ideas to the table and, you know, hammer things out. But that's not what this is. You know, these are not ideas that are being advanced. These are, you know, emotions, these are fears, hatreds, you know, dark desires. Um, And 
is that a very, I don't know, liberal, elitist, smug position? It's like, these people must be either hateful or fools. You know, I, I don't know what to say about that. You know, I, I can only have the position and the attitude that I have. Um, and we shouldn't go on and on about it. I'm, I'm sorry to have gone on about it for this long. But yes, it has been a very dark time, especially for people like us who are so wedded to a hopeful, idealistic view of human progress. And this seems like exactly the reverse. Well, I mean, I mean to, to reduce it to its core, we grew up watching a show whose fundamental thesis was that humanity is at its best when we acknowledge our our role in helping each other, like looking beyond immediate self-gain uh, to, to create a better world for us all. And well, and that pluralism plays a big part in that, yeah. you know, bringing everybody to the table, not excluding anybody, you know, being uh, open minded, uh, caring, thoughtful, uh, you know, and yeah, I mean, literally, and I can't speak for the people who voted, you know, I can only suspect things about them, but we can speak very clearly and easily and definitively about the people who were voted for because they have put their position out there explicitly for 15 or 18 or 24 months. And unless you want us to believe that everything they said was a lie or a misrepresentation about their own beliefs, then these people are, are antithetical to everything that's beautiful about Star Trek and everything that I thought was beautiful about the United States of America. Well, I, mean, I mean, not to put, like, even if you accept that, the jobs will come back, and that's a conversation that is not needed to be started here. But I can picture Captain Picard sitting you down and saying, even if the job does come back, even if this does stabilize your life economically, the other things this person advocated for make it an unethical act to, to do. Like, you, you don't get to purchase your economic stability at the expense of you know, LGBTQ people, immigrants, women, uh, black people, and the list keeps going. Uh, it, it, that, yeah, like, it just, we're all supposed to basically care about, like, that's what Star Trek taught me. You're all supposed to care about each other in some meaningful way. And at, at the best interpretation of, of this event is that while they may not primarily want those bad things to happen to those groups, they, they don't mind if they, they don't mind if it's the incidental side effect on the off chance that it returns uh, the American economy to the 1950s, and that's a that's that's just a depressing thought. That is that is just depressing. So well, we, to bring it back to Star Trek, yeah, the Ferengi won the election. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Ferengi were a caricature <laughs> of the worst, meanest, basest aspects of American capitalist, you know, consumerist society, uh, you know, with all the attendant, you know, mistreatment of women and minorities and poorer people and, you know, well, hey, we've got a Grand Nagus now. I hope you enjoy it, motherfuckers. <laughs> All right, anyway. So we picked a happy episode, and we actually picked a pretty good Ferengi episode, and I have yeah. some thoughts on this um, once we get into it. So let's, let's okay, we're going to be retreating into a fantasy world just to survive for the next at least two to four years. So let's let's dig in in our escapism together. Yes. All right, I'm queued up and ready to go. Yeah, so I've got my desk ready. Hopefully you've got your Netflix ready. Yep. As long as Netflix. Reality exists. Um, <laughs> so let's all press play in three, two, one, press play. Okay. I am already grossed out by this episode. On the one hand, I appreciate that, of course, Odo is going to provide shape shifting services to Kira. But because I don't buy the basis of this relationship, yeah, I, I find I'm, their pillow talk 
disgusting. I'm there. I'm there with you. Like it's like they don't like it. Part of it's just the eight pounds of makeup, but it's it's just hard to read attraction or intimacy on Odo's face. Um, I like the idea. Like that probably would be a super awesome massage, but it is just uh, strange. But anyway, yeah. Now, now we're into the getting into the plot. So yeah, thankfully it's not lasting very long. Um, yeah, Gol Rusal uh, has sent Odo a message and wants to meet with him, uh, and he doesn't know why. Uh, but he's most reliable Cardassian informant. Okay, great. Um, you know, I, I generally like the the hook. You know, it's like Odo has to check this out. He cares about the war and and Cardassian uh, movements and wants to find out about them. Uh, and so, fine, that's great. She has very narrow shoulders, by the way. She's a petite woman. Yeah. Well, and it makes her head look even bigger. Um, all right, so in our B plot here, Cork uh, is upset. Uh, the promenade apparently is closed, and there's lots of tubes everywhere. And you know, um, so there, there, there's a problem. You know, and the chief is working expeditiously to try to figure out the problem, but things aren't happening as fast as Quark would like. <laughs> I love Armin Shimmerman. He makes the most out of every single line. Yeah, you know, actually, in a lot of ways, this is a Ferengi episode, but Quark doesn't play a huge role in it. It's a lot more of a Nog show, right? Yeah, and, and w w once we get into the meat of Nog's story, I have some thoughts on Ferengi in general and as applied in this episode. Um... I don't. I, I. As far as plot setups go, this is the most MacGuffin MacGuffin that ever MacGuffined. Like it. it like Cisco walked on screen literally long enough to say, "You must get this object. No one's ever seen, and no one quite knows what it is." Like, like no viewer has ever had since it's a fake piece of equipment. Like he just said, "Get me." It's almost like a video game where it's like, "Yes, bring me this blue key, and I'll give you the thing you need to keep going on your mission." It's. It's not the worst plot setup because it serves such a otherwise entertaining story, but whew, it's just kind of, at least it's short. <laughs> it's like Cisco yeah. walked on, gave them their job, and left. <laughs> so now here is sort of, he has an insight, you know, how should we go about getting this graviton stabilizer? Um, you know, and Nag has a feel for you know, wheeling and dealing, right? Right. We had the previous episode with the self-sealing stem bolts, and, you know, it's clear that this is part of Nog's character, but, of course, he's trying to marshal uh, these instincts and, and these beliefs in the service of Starfleet and the Federation, which is a nice aspect of Nog's character. Yeah, I, I, I like that. It, it, it's a very light hand it, it, at um, sort of applying Federation values rather than talking about them. Like, Nog did not become a better Federation officer by abandoning his Ferengi values. He learned to make them fit in the broader Federation system. Yeah. And and, and as far as market economics go, this works fine. Like, it's actually a perfectly valid... It's 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 the perfect use of the market because it's obvious, if nothing else, so artificially constructed. Um, but I, I like it, um, both as character work for Nog and a kind of modulation of the Ferengi generally. Well, here we have another strangely bright cave. Yeah. Um, I always I, I always assumed that based on the coloring and lighting scheme in this cave that Gul Rusal was the Cardassian who gave Odo the information about who tried to assassinate Garrick back in Improbable mm -hmm. Cause. Yeah. The shadowy Cardassian guy. Yeah. yeah. Maybe so. Uh, John Ruskin, I think that was, if I remember his voice correctly. And of course, now we have Wayoon, and I'm never going to be sad at seeing Wayoon. Yeah, it's it's always a, a boon for fans, um, you know. And even if you, for God knows what reason, picked up Deep Space Nine in season seven, uh, there's enough here to make you like Wayoon and find him interesting. 
I mean, you've got Jeffrey Coombs with his inimitable performance. Um, but then, you know, this is the real hook of the story. And this teaser has lasted for quite a long time, actually. Uh, we're already at five minutes and 40 seconds without any previously on Deep Space Nine. Um, but it's a great hook, you know, a defection of, a, of an extremely high-level, you know, Dominion person. Yeah. And then, of course, for people who are already familiar with the story, you know, you've got the, the added layer of Odo being this, you know, outcast, you know, from the founders and Wayun having this sort of worshipful relationship uh, with any founder, including Odo, um, which has always kind of perplexed me a little bit. You know, I mean, I get there's like some kind of genetic imperative to, to worship founders or something, but... It seems as though Wayun or any other Vorta should be able to just sort of view Odo as the traitor. You know, I, I, I don't know. I've never quite bought it. And I know it's a story point, and I know, I know it's, you know, they're trying to make the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta seem alien and strange. Uh, and I would say at least it's backed up by the founder. It's not out of nowhere. Like, I think, like, the founder has that line... Uh, getting Odo back is worth more than the Alpha Quadrant, and yeah. I believed yeah. her when she said it. Like, I don't <laughs> think it would be a permanent trade-off, but I, I believe her in that moment. No, I agree. Um, and that does make You know, I mean, we're going to get some of these other aspects uh, of the founder disease that's going to come up, and, you know, so there's clearly some overall plot work being done here uh but it's a it's a it's a good standalone episode on its own i'm very pleased that we don't have a previously on deep space nine you know it's like the story stands alone enough that we don't have to you know sort of remind everybody of the weight of continuity um it's quite a title too yeah I, I feel like it's sort of a title that they came up with because it's like, well, what is this story about? Well, there's treachery and there's faith and there's a great river. Uh, oh, go with that. You know? There's such a, there's a wonderful way Jeffrey Combs has this ability to uh, concisely handle dialogue. The neat way he's just like, oh, well, we better get to run about because I am being hunted to death. Like it just, there's just, there's something he, there's like this brisk efficiency that turns into utter ruthlessness on a dime, and it makes Wayun fascinating to watch. Well, and actually, he doesn't speak that quickly, you know. Like he's got that sort of breathy tone to his voice, yeah. and it really, you know, makes him seem really obsequious. Um, I mean, partially, I think it's because of his physical stature. You know, he's just you know, on the shorter side yeah. uh, of men, especially in Hollywood. Um, and it, it really, it adds something to his portrayals of characters like this, you know? Uh, I mean, here it fits with the obsequiousness, you know, when he's Shran in Enterprise, he comes off with this sort of short man complex and it works there too. Um, this teleplay and directing combo is like totally different, you yeah. know. Like I, I feel like I haven't seen these names before. I also have to. We, we we were talking over, but one of my favorite lines: "Aren't you being a little paranoid?" Of course, I'm paranoid. Everyone's trying to kill me. I. <laughs> yeah, very well delivered. Absolutely. Uh, all right, I guess. The writer of this episode also did One Little Ship, Sons and Daughters, Rules of Engagement, Time's Orphan. Uh, okay, this might be his best, thinking out back at that list. Yeah, yeah. One Little Ship was a lot of fun. Yeah. Edgar who? <laughs> Edgar Willoughby. 
I do find it a little bit hard to believe that someone like Chief O'Brien doesn't understand the soft touch, like the personal touch. Yeah. Like he's he's a chatty Irishman who everyone likes. That's actually his character's job in the universe. Well, I, and he's an enlisted man, so he's used to sort of understanding how things work, you know, beneath the level of, you know, the higher-ups, right? Yeah. And so he's like, trade? What do you mean trade? Relationship? I don't have time for that stuff. It, it, it's a little bit forced for the conceit of the episode, I think. I agree, but I'm not mad. It's not. It's not impossible. It's like if you if you just painted this as just he is busy and more curt than he would be, you can kind of round up. Like even Cisco. Like there's being a stern captain, then there's being flatly unreasonable. Like I want this thing fixed in less time than you, than is available to obtain and install the part. Like. There's there's being like a you know firm leader and then there's just making unreasonable demands and yeah but it's fine because it, it here's the thing it's science fiction all of it's a conceit <laughs> like as long as you do something fun or interesting with it I'll I'll let go of a lot it's just such an honor to be sitting here with a security officer <laughs> there's a split diopter effect by the way. I just can't not point out split diopters when I see them. It's just an obsession with me. Not a particularly good one. I mean, Odo's got kind of a blurry face anyway. Yeah. So, now, Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this the first introduction of the concept of clone waves? No, 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 no. I believe the first time we see the clones is it's after To the Death when he meets, when Weyun meets Cisco. Um, okay, there is a dialogue mention of it. Yeah, it's like, because uh, he, he says, oh, I thought, I didn't I watch you die? And it's like, no, that was my previous um, uh, Weyun. And I want to say it's the one when Weyun comes to the station to negotiate the non-aggression pact with the Bajorans. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no. Maybe it's... um. Maybe it's when it's, uh, what's her face, uh, to Kenny Gamore. I'll have to look it up, but yeah, they definitely talk about it. Okay. What's interesting here, of course, is that they sort of introduce the, the thought of variation and, you know, sort of organic dysfunction. You know, it's, it's like occasionally clones will just sort of go off a little bit and... and defective as they say what other explanation is this free behavior <laughs> Jeffrey Combs is such a good actor watching him act with himself is really a treat <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh, Casey Biggs exasperation and uh, I don't think we've got there yet but the uh, the implication that DeMar had something to do with the last Wayun's death just delighted me to no end because their fractious relationship has been an endless source of entertainment this uh, in the last two seasons. Yeah, and Casey Biggs does a really good job of playing it very, very subtly. You know, it's like, as the viewer, you're looking at him for any clue, and he gives you just the barest hint of a clue in, like, a facial expression or the way he's holding himself or a pause in speech. And it's enough to convince you that, you know, there really was something going on. I also like the subtle dialogue work to Weyun, he's a founder, to Damar, he's a shapeshifter. Yeah. We haven't even really gotten to the, the big hook. Um, I mean, yeah, there's a lot going on here. Uh, but this is, the, to me, the most interesting part of the episode. From the moment I was activated, I thought the war was wrong. I worship the founders, but their obsession with the Alpha Quadrant is misguided. I mean, I, I think it makes the, the Dominion more interesting to know that there is difference of opinion. And it makes Wayun more interesting 
that he's thoughtful enough to consider these things, you know? Yeah. Well, I always thought, like, we talked about this a little bit with the Jem'Hadar, and I have to imagine it's even more true for the Vorta. Uh, like, like any good automaton story, there's the tension between making them so intelligent as to be useful, but not so intelligent that they question their servitude. And it just seems like this, that would be the, like, you created these people specifically to be the, like, you know, Ottoman emirs running your empire for you because the founders don't do day-to-day administration. So you need flexible, responsive, intelligent, creative people. But that's naturally going to leave some of them in a place to question policy. I find this glassware kind of odd. The green frosted glass. It's a very strange choice. And of course it's square and there, there's that. But I just, I don't know if you remember, Kevin, you might be too young, but you know, in the, in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of frosted glassware. Oh yeah, yeah, my mom had some of it. <laughs> I, like I feel like they're doing it just to disguise the canard or something. And that's, well, also it's the future. If they just had like standard tumblers you could get at a crate and barrel, it might pull you out of the moment. Oh, God, this is so good. Like, this is Shakespeare. They're, they're giving us, like, Julius Caesar right here. Um, it's just... <laughs> oh, like the smirk. The smirk. It's so good. <laughs> I was lucky. Well, and it's like, if he didn't have something to do with it, he still wants William to think he did. Just to mess with him. Yeah. I always enjoy it when Weyoun and or founders sort of assert themselves over the Cardassians. You know, I, I like the the political flavor of it. Yeah. You know, that they're, you know, it's like you have to remember your place. And DeMar and, does a good job of holding his own. Like, because I, I think the thing is, he he is actually, you know, setting aside morality in the right like, most of the time when he gets snotty about Cardassian second-class status, it's ego, or at best, you know, concern for his people. But he is, in fact, correct here. Allowing, essentially, you know, the prime minister of the Dominion, for lack of a you know better analogy, to defect would be irreversibly catastrophic for the war. You could not alter enough plans quickly enough to nullify that intelligence find. Well, and he's a patriot. Yeah. You know, Mar is a patriot. And he's not even really a self-serving patriot. Like, he actually cares about Cardassia yeah, yeah. and storing it to greatness. Unlike Ducat, right. who was a self-serving Just, right. you know, individual. I understand that it's a 42-minute show, and I get the, the need for efficiency. I do think Weyoun 7 was able to get to Odo doesn't really consider himself a founder a little quickly. That being said, yeah. I do like that death stare. Like, I agree with you and we'll go with it, but you're still an ass. Like, that's a, that all of that was packed into that look. Yeah, so, th- and that's part of my problem with, you know, if Weiyun 6 could get to the sort of moral ambiguity to, to be able to see different positions um, and yet worshipped Odo enough to seek him out, why doesn't Weyoun 7 have that? Like, how different are these clones? How different? Hmm. I don't know. It, it's very strange. And I wonder if that's where the plugs go for the lights. Yeah. They really should have two-factor authentication in the future. Like, <laughs> like it should have sent a ping to his comm badge with a code he had to enter. Well, Starfleet officers don't lie about that kind of stuff. That's true. Also, this doesn't quite make sense. Why not just replicate a desk? Like, yeah. you should. You, you can replicate, like, DNA strands and stuff, right? I mean, like, you're, come on. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I understand why this Mr. Lorenzo would want the desk. Like, obviously, you know, as a, in terms of its artifact value, I get that. But to fool the captain, why not just replicate a desk? It's, I mean, it's still cute. Like, there's... There, there's something I'm trying to think of which movie genre I'm thinking of. Is it is it like the old like uh, uh, you know what was it Bob Hope and uh, who was the other one in all those road comedies? 
uh, Bing Crosby. Like, like there's there's this very like straight guy. I'm worried. I'm nervous. It's all gonna go to hell. And then like the smooth talking con artist. And not that Nog is quite a con artist. He's he's flexible with some rules here. But like it, it feels like they're pulling a page out of that book. You know, uh, Jack Lemon. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Like, it, and it works. Like I'll say that O'Brien and Nog have good chemistry. You know. Like they they managed to chart a good arc with O'Brien of like somewhat skeptical to paternalistic to like respecting Nog like like where it's like he watched him turn into a good officer and I, I like the way it plays so they, they, they there's good work here. The problem here and it really just occurs to me now as I was thinking about why isn't the chief familiar with this sort of uh, you know undercurrent is that Nog outranks him. You know, and so he's he's very dismissive of Nog in a way that is inappropriate. Yeah, and I would say, I would say that his position as chief of operations might put him higher in the chain of command, despite rank. Because the, I, I I could, if I put my mind to it, come up with you know positions where like ex officio you are now in charge. But they make a joke about it with that when Nog graduates from the academy, he'll have to call him sir. So. Yeah. It's like, make the joke or don't, but you gotta pick one. Also, make O'Brien an officer. I understand why he was a chief on the Enterprise, because he had such, like, a, like, support staff job. But when you made him chief of operations, you couldn't make him a lieutenant. Yeah. yeah. Like, was it just we like calling him chief? <laughs> it, yeah, just call him chief as a lieutenant. Yeah, yeah. So, Nod just gave his summation of the Great River, and... Anybody who is a student of uh, Hayek or libertarian thought, generally speaking, will probably enjoy that description inordinately. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it really is an interesting expression of the idea behind uh, market and price theory. You know, there are millions and millions of worlds, all of them with too much of one thing or not enough of another thing, and the continuum flows through them all. And if you can navigate that continuum. With skill and grace, uh, you know, your ship will be overflowing with everything you desire. And that's a good thing, you know. It, it's that description of the Ferengi makes them so much more sympathetic. Yeah, yeah, totally. Than every other description that's been done so far. Yeah, I, really. I just think it's like in practice, you know, none of the things being traded for or with were necessities of life. It wasn't like O'Brien's family would be destitute if he didn't get this object for Cisco. None of the participants in these nested series of trades refused to speak to Nog because he was a Ferengi. Yeah. So I, I think in practice, here, here we go. Here's a conundrum for you. The best place for free markets to work is the Federation where everyone has to be nice to each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So obviously there are... Uh negative market externalities, to use the, the phraseology, that would impact the sort of ideal uh, functioning of this great material continuum, and that do in our world, yeah. <laughs> right? I will say, and, this uh, just jumping in, good effects work. The, the shot of, like, sure. the runabout banking, the textures on the runabout hall work really good. No, you know, they're doing all this with uh, CGI, uh, and they're getting better at it with every season. You know, it's like... That they've, they're starting to figure some things out. They're they're doing good choreography. They're, the marriage of the effects and the sound is making things feel, uh, you know, real and impactful. And then of course they're they're marrying it with also these you know practical interior effects yeah. too. So you know it it really sells the overall. Uh, feeling. Yeah, like th that little jump up at, over and behind the Jemadar ship. Really well done. Yeah. Also, I always love how runabouts are exactly as durable as the plot requires, more so than any other ship. Good explosion work. Like, um, yeah, one of their one of their better CGI explosions. Yeah, and and we finally gotten away from one of my least favorite things, which is of course the explosion over a ship, and then the ship is just gone. That always. Yeah, there's at eye. least some wreckage flying. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it, it does raise questions for me of how powerful a runabout is and could it really do this. And if there's really this, like, 
weak spot. <laughs> right. Why why not just cover it with something? Well, um, but not just that, but you know, like wouldn't you think over a thousand battles someone would have found it. Yeah. Notice this weak spot. Um I have to say I really like this exchange here. Have you considered that the fa- you worship the founders because they designed you to and like Wayun's like very Yes, of course. The, there's like that beautiful circularity about faith that what and, and I have to say for an episode talking about faith in a show that's not known for espousing it that often this was a pretty light hand all things said uh, and, and you can even you can even hang a thread between Nog's story and uh Wayun's story in that you both watch these two non-human characters navigate the world through their subjective faith views of the universe and both are handled with a surprisingly deft touch. Like there's actually orders of magnitude more effective than than most of the Bajoran stories when you think about it. Yeah. Well, actually, there's a sound theological point being made too, um, it, with, with what Wayuna is saying. Uh, a god would naturally create the kind of beings that would worship it. You know. Yeah. And so to say that one form of creation of that worship instinct is somehow fundamentally different or better or morally, you know, on a higher level than simply doing it genetically, let's say, you know, it's like, well, you know, who are you to say that creation ex nihilo with a worship instinct is somehow better or more believable than creation through genetic engineering of a worship instinct? Well, I I also like that. There have been many times and many arguments in which the same proposition is used by one side to disprove God, while the same set of facts somehow proves God to the same to a different set of people. That was well done. Excuse me. <laughs> I always wondered why the founders like. I always thought when the founders came out of the um, Great Link in the search they looked like they did because it was like a crude approximation of odo and i always wonder why they kept that look yeah i kind of also wonder why a founder would ever allow themselves to appear weak if they have it within their power to not like I just don't get her walking around looking shriveled. Well, did she, uh, I think the implication was either she didn't know or temporarily lost control, but yeah. Well, so I'd rather see her walk in looking smooth and then like, briefly. Yeah, yeah. Shift to shriveled looking. It's it's just it doesn't. No, I, I, I get what you're saying. What what their whole modus operandi is? I mean, they have to appear uh, godlike, you know. Um, <laughs> I love eating pizza with chopsticks. It's uh, it's one of those incongruities that sells the moment. And, and it's perfectly done. Like, he stabs the pepperoni with the chopstick. Like, that's just really good. And this gives us an interesting conversation about uh, the Vorta. Uh, their history as a race, of course, but also the fact that they don't really taste much. Well, they also, and they also uh, don't see much. <laughs> yeah. They hear well, but see poorly and taste poorly. Uh, and, you know, it, it's it's an evocative line that makes you, the viewer, think about what what would it be like to be more focused on texture yeah. than flavor and aroma. Uh, I, also, I also really like Rene Auberjonois' performance in this episode. He There's like a... It's it's just this side of condescension, if you get what I'm saying. Like it, he's like engaging him, but not quite buying any of it, and he's making it clear that he's not. Um, yeah. And I enjoy that line he's walking with again, not making it heavy-handed. I gotta say, as creation myths go, this is a pretty good one. This this feels that feels like something right out of uh, Greek mythology, you know. Yeah. Townspeople rescue uh, rescue injured bird. Bird turns out to be Zeus. Zeus impregnates daughter. At the end, like that. That that's I think that's like four Roman myths, right? <laughs> it raises questions for me, though. You know, if we're to take it as representing something close to the truth, did the changelings have this? 
galaxy striding plan for dominion when they were being chased like was this a part of their mythology that that their ethos the way they approached the universe it's like if it was you kind of understand why they were chased around it's like (laughs) you know it's like you actually want to dominate us you know it's not just our prejudice that's making us think this you know (laughs) it's like maybe i should run you out of town you know i don't know It, it it it's strange it's not bad it's not good it's just it's interesting so then we get this extra thread that so of of the the changeling disease right and this feels like it's just being added for later development it's it's kind of like the one thing too far you know we're sort of overstuffing things here um a little bit story-wise you know there there was enough here already to be interesting yeah yeah I suppose you could argue the revelation now, like you can see it on Odo's face. He's now hooked. Like yeah. there's now, there's now reciprocity in this exchange. Like it's not just Odo with a prisoner. And I think that's a interesting development as any. And, and Jeffrey Combs is really acting the hell out of describing a scene we didn't see. Also, Odo's pain face is pretty good, and sometimes he can he can oversell it. Yeah, I like this subtle indication of distress. Um, and I like the overall story point they're making, that he would be the only changeling left in the universe, which is, of course, where he started, right? Right, right. He thought he was the only being like him. And so it, it's a, a cruel irony that this thing that could actually help the Federation would end up hurting Odo. Yeah. And it brings up that sort of, you know, divided loyalty uh, question for his character. And then, of course, I really like this idea. You know, you could rule the Dominion. It's because a, it, oh, go ahead. all of these people, you know, are programmed to it's worship a, you, but you could... You know, change things. I, I also like that it, it demonstrates Wayun is not he's not insane. He's not just or even evil by subjective dominion standards. In his own head, he sees his actions as ultimately saving the Dominion from its wrong choices. So he's he's found a solution that will resolve all of those concerns. Yeah, and actually I kinda wish they had gone in that direction. Like, yeah, what would Odo look like as the monolithic ruler of the dominion yes because on the one hand he'd be disinclined from doing it out of his own interior moral sense but then on a practical sense i think he also understands that a galaxy spanning empire suddenly losing its uh, system of government would be just as large of a you know human rights crisis it's a bar it's you know if you'll accept the term um or a threat to federation safety like he couldn't yeah. ju- he couldn't just say no no, Odo absolutely believes in the greatest good, you know, and I think he would sacrifice himself, you know, to the greatest good. This is a nice look. Not, I mean, it's not a perfect asteroid field, yeah, uh, but it's well done compared to prior things in Star Trek. Yeah, it's it's not as good as the Promelian battlefield. Yeah, right? yeah, because that was all practical effects. Yeah. But this is really well done, and they do a good job of, you know, snaking the runabout in there, and I like these phaser blasts, and I also like the idea, the yeah. basic idea of creating, like, thermal equi- equilibrium to hide yourself, you know. It, it's it's a fascinating idea, right? And so overall, and of course, we've got the view out the window, you know, which is well done. It's just a very clever sequence that's yeah. very entertaining. Of course, it's again an oddly bright... Yeah, in asteroid interior. (laughs) (laughs) But whatever. (laughs) You know, if everything were realistic, you know, it it would just be black. Right, there'd be no sound and... (laughs) Like, yeah, the man is an engineer 
who like manipulates the fundamental particles of matter to heat his coffee. Desk, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. Like the wrong height, the wrong width. It's a, jo- it, 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 you know what it is? It's too far for the joke, and that's because that's all it's here for. Yeah, this does kind of look like an unfinished, you know, prop. Like a console. Yeah, it looks like a console that like end up on the bridge or something. I will say, Nana Visitor did a good job with her line. And who does not love Martok? Like, <laughs> like I, I mean, I get the joke we're going for with, you know, Miles O'Brien and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. It's largely working just because, like, this this poor befuddled man, he just wants to go home, hug his kids, kiss his wife, have a beer. <laughs> I want to know why Nog took the, the bottles out of the crate and what? then left the crate. Right. Why not just take the crate? <laughs> it's like 16 bottles would be a lot to lug around. It'd be it's easier like to carry in the crate. I agree. Carry case, yeah. Did he really cut power to all the systems? I see an awful lot of lights, you know, lit up consoles. Well, also, here. I, I've always been nagged by the um, like w- w- when oxygen runs out too quickly thing. Like, I, if memory serves, the Apollo thirteen astronauts survived for like three, four days in a smaller space, and there were three of them pumping CO two into that room. Well, to be fair, in that instance, they did have to improvise an air filter. I don't think they would have died in three hours. And I do think that the runabout here has more oxygen and more space, especially given the runabout we saw in TNG. Right. right? And With you all figure, those rooms. given the safety OSHA obsessed Federation, you got to figure there's like a bunch of like passive air filtration systems, like not just the air pumps, but like the, the like, you know, lo- lower energy stuff that would, would help you survive longer, I'm just guessing. But I, I'll say this the, no, like a fern or something, yeah. you know? It's like, just put a goddamn fern on every runabout. That would give you another hour. And I have to say, it's good particle work. I think more of the actual ice asteroids would just vaporize, but I'm enjoying it. Like, it it just looks good. It looks like a a high-end video game of the era. Yeah, you know, what's better about these sequences is the way they're moving the ships through the field. Like, if you focus on the ice chunks... You know, it, they look a little faky, but they move well, and the ships move well through them, and so yeah, yeah. the overall effect is is sold. Yeah. Like, I'm buying it, and I like it. Yeah, so, you know, I'm... Having expressed my desire to see Odo as Emperor, you know... This is a little disappointing. Yeah, yeah. But it does make sense, of course, for Wayun Six here. And I, and again, it's a credit to Combs' acting. He made me care. I'm sad. Yeah, it, it is sort of a <laughs> very dramatically extended uh, death sequence. <laughs> it's like I've triggered it, but it will take at least five or ten minutes. So there's a, there's a lot of dialogue that can still be. Uh, delivered here maybe that's because he activated it on the right side of his head if he activated the left ear suicide pill it'd be instantaneous like the vorta know when it when they need to make a speech well and it just it belies the premise of doing it because he still has time to like reveal information yeah yeah exactly you know but good good on way in seven there still having the worshipful attitude towards odo I, i like the uh the makeup job, the little like uh, vein work. Yeah. Oh, it, it's yeah. And this is uh, Combs is definitely selling the the need, the worshipful need yeah. here. And you know, Odo is reluctant, but he does it because it's it's worth it. It's worth the cost and discomfort for the gain and happiness. Right. You know? 
and yeah, I think Jeffrey Coombs definitely played it well. You know, to die in the arms of someone you worship. Uh, you know, there, there's a certain happiness in addition to you know pain and suffering and all that stuff. Yeah, a certain bliss. <laughs> I like the way Aaron Eisenberg is playing this. You know, um, <laughs> it was looking a little dull. Now, are we to take it that this is his? original desk and it's just back or the, yeah, the, the that, chief no i would say that that's how i read it that he got it back in time because uh though i suppose the the, the punchline we're getting about martok getting better wine than he lost um indicates that nog might trade up but part, part of the problem though is that did cisco like love the desk or something like would he really care you know it's like what if they just had to trade the desk for the the thing that they need right you feel like cisco would be okay with that. right right like maybe if they if he lost the baseball i mean he'd be pretty pissed about that but which may, would that you know i was thinking maybe that would have been a better joke but that also would have been mean like it would it like it would have crossed a line like like taking martok's wine is one thing taking like a treasured keepsake for Cisco might be might be the bridge too far and symbolically risky. It's like you're 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 messing with the system. Like, yeah, I I agree. It would have made Nog come off poorly. Yeah, if he had stolen stolen something dear, but that's why the the desk gag is a little bit iffy for me. Yeah. You know, and so the episode ends uh, like it began with Odo and Kira. You know, I definitely prefer this kind of scene. Oh, yeah, well, the, uh, this scene could have played out if they were friends. I mean... <laughs> yeah, and would have been better. Um, and this is actually a pretty decent... Like, of all of the viewpoints on Bajoran religion, um, this is probably the most interesting because it's the most concisely and thoroughly expressed. Like we get a similar, we, we it's a, it, it mirrors in a way, uh, Wayun's statement about of course we were of course they designed us to worship them their gods. There's a certain amount like that sort of circularness of faith comes out in Kira's line and it comes out very subtly. It's not it's not proselytizing. It's not bombastic. It's it's very true and it's also interesting to watch Kira sympathize or at least empathize. Am I using those words correctly? Um, with Wayun's character because it's like. It's it's almost something about her that she can readily empathize with a character with profound faith, even though, like, you know, half a season ago, she would kill him where he stood. Yeah. And it, this is this is sober advice. Like it, you know, for the Dominion did start this war, and if it means they're just like, you know, what it is everyone here has an interesting layered point of view, and Odo's line. Is, is it's it's like you said it's it's it, it's like the re- returning him to the state of being the only one like him is is a very hard thing to contemplate but it's 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 interesting to see Odo sum it up that way like it makes you really feel for him I kind of feel like they left out the line that Kira would immediately deliver after that which is well you're not alone yeah you know you have me right and, you know, that would make me cringe because I don't like them together, but it would make sense. Um, all right. Well, so writing-wise, uh, there are very distinct A and B plots. Uh, they don't totally relate. I mean, I, I get what you're saying, that Nog has faith in the great material continuum, but that's that's a stretch, you know. Um, but they're both very enjoyable. So I don't mind it so much. I don't feel like one takes a lot away from the other. Like it doesn't, the B plot doesn't waste the time of the A plot. Yeah. In yeah. fact, both could probably be episodes on their own. Right. Uh, it's probably good that the B plot wasn't its own episode because it would be very, very similar to in the cards. Yeah. You know, sort of a hijinks, uh, you know, 
trading for various purposes kind of plot. Um, you know, I, I, w- I was interested and engaged with both plots for the entire episode. Yeah, t- totally. Um, I thought there were good character moments. We learned a lot about the Vorta, which I enjoyed. Um, you know, and there were good character moments for Wayun, for Odo, and for Nog. Not so much for Chief O'Brien, and not not really for anybody else. Well, but, they, they were largely placeholders. Yeah. Well, and like Bashir showed up for like one line. Yeah. Um, and Cisco didn't play much of a, of a big role either. Um, is it the most like profoundly uh, moving or life changing or enlightening episode? I would say no. You know, I almost hate to say it. If there were, if we're gonna do an episode that centers thematically on fate, faith, I would much rather have a lighthearted, entertaining episode than an episode that reached for something dramatically moving. Because when they do that. I think Rapture is one of the few things I can think of that was actually successful. It otherwise tends to go off the rails a bit quickly. So if you're going to do a Faith episode, going for a lighthearted romp is actually not the worst idea. <laughs> no, I, I agree that it's tough to do. Um, but Rightful Air was an amazing, you know, TNG show. Yeah, yeah certainly. I would that, agree with that. That really touched deeply on questions of Faith. But, you know... Of course, yeah, it, it's hard to do over and over, especially with as muddled a picture as Deep Space Nine presents uh, of the various faiths and, and the messages we're supposed to take from them and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I tend to agree. Like, it's thought-provoking. Um, it just doesn't go deep on any of those thoughts, you know, which might be for the best. Uh, I agree. Um you know, acting-wise, Jeffrey Coombs is the standout, I think. Oh, yeah, hands down. DeMar, um, DeMar is like, like, there are no small parts. Yeah, I mean, he, he takes the two minutes he has and nails them. You know, I wonder, you know, if, if we were to go to a convention again and have Casey Biggs in the room, you know, I might ask him more about that. It's like... If you have two minutes on screen, how much time do you spend, you know, with the script, really digging into, you know, your character? It's like, is it like one hour per minute? Is it like five hours per minute? Like, and I know it's a weekly, you know, teleplay thing. So, uh, but I'm just curious about how much preparation goes into being able to nail it, just like nail it so well each time um and i you know i would be interested to hear the same thing from jeffrey combs yeah. right uh because he's a recurring character but not you know every episode i don't know it's interesting stuff yeah. uh the effects work was really good all the shots of the ships moving really well done yeah um, they they were cut well they were cut quickly, but not jarringly or distractingly into the action on the ship. Like, no, and you could still tell who was firing at what and where they were going in relation to, you know... Each yeah. other in the space, yeah. It was all well done. Um, so, personally, I would say overall this is a four for me. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, um, you know, it's definitely a cut above average. Uh, there, there's... There's a lot of nice stuff going on that makes this an episode that's fun to watch, but it's not all comedy, you yeah, know. Yeah, no, it has heart. It, yeah, it's, it has pathos. Let's put it that way. It's it's a deft mix of comedy and serious scenes, you know, and it it never veers too far in either direction. Tonally, it stays right where it needs to be, you know. There's really nothing that just rips you out of the moment uh and overall i yeah i think it's a four i you know what is a five i mean a five has to be like transcendently good right and you know i don't think there's anything like that here, right but this isn't this isn't uh 
this might not even be this wouldn't be an episode I would show a new Star Trek fan. I think a lot of this trades on the emotional work and care on relationships previously established. This isn't for newbies, but for a, for a fan, there's a lot here to like. It's it's one it's one that always engages me and one I always enjoy watching. Yeah, you definitely have to get Odo. You have to understand the Ferengi. You have to understand the Vorda and the Dominion thing. And then even, you know, Kira's, what she brings to it is based on understanding, you know, the morass of <laughs> Bajoran history and, and, you know, where they place uh, in this universe and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it, you can't just pick this one up, Yeah, you know. Um, and I know I said earlier that you could, but really thinking about it now, no. I, like, I think you would enjoy this and you might be interested but you wouldn't get out of it all that you should right? if you weren't versed in DS9 and yeah. Star Trek generally. Yeah. But that's not, that's not a knock. I mean, we don't expect every episode to be a self-contained thing that could be your first episode ever. Yeah. There are episodes that are great for that, and there are episodes that aren't. But there are good ones and bad ones in each yeah. uh, you know, category. All right, well, so that's total of an eight. Yeah, good episode. I'm glad we watched it together. I won't say I feel completely better about the universe, but... Um, no. <laughs> no, but I, I certainly enjoyed our time together and will continue to do so to, uh, to to endure whatever is coming. That's what we have to cling to, Kevin. As we circle the drain, you know, there will be some some nice twists and turns that we can enjoy with friends and loved ones. And then... You know, just you know, spiral to our doom. Yeah, before all drinking hemlock together. <laughs> <laughs> or something. Yeah. And that is usually how the destruction of democracies uh, ends, with the execution of good people. Uh, okay, on that note. On that note. You brought it up. You, you I, mentioned hemlock first. I did. <laughs> I did. My bad. All right. All right, so that's an 8 out of 10 for an enjoyable, energetic episode. Um I think we were talking about doing Siege of AR-558 next, so that'll be a real uh, real party. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a downer, yeah. but it's interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting downer. All right, uh, well, have a good night, everyone. Yep, live long and prosper. <laughs>